All right, so if you read through Philippians this last week, you know what to do. Raise that hand up high. Raise it up high. Awesome, great. But before we get into Philippians, beloved, I want to talk about another matter first. There is a phrase, maybe you have heard it, it goes like this. Never let a serious crisis go to waste. Never let a serious crisis go to waste. This phrase, or one almost like it, has been attributed to Winston Churchill during the time of the Second World War, although there doesn't seem to be any solid evidence for it. I do know that some politicians of our day have made similar statements. The thought behind the statement, I think, is that a serious crisis creates certain opportunities that otherwise may not have been there and that those opportunities should not be ignored or squandered. A similar sentiment is found in an excellent article that John Piper wrote titled, Don't Waste Your Cancer, which can be found online and downloaded for free, and I would highly recommend it to you. In the article, he has 10 points, and at our last Sunday service, at the Neighborhood Center, which was on March 15th, which to me right now feels like months ago, but it was only three weeks ago. At that service, I shared some of the 10 points with you. I want to remind you of one of those points again. And as I did back on March 15th, I'll do again. I will replace the word cancer in his article with the phrase, the COVID-19 pandemic. So his fourth point, John Piper's point, is you will waste the COVID-19 pandemic if you refuse to think about death. He says, we will all die if Jesus postpones his return, not to think about what it will be like to leave this life and meet God is folly. Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it is better to go to the house of mourning or a funeral than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. John says, how can you lay it to heart if you won't think about it? Then he quotes Psalm 90 verse 12 that says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Piper says, numbering your days means thinking about how few there are and that they will end. How will you get a heart of wisdom if you refuse to think about this? What a waste, he says, if we do not think about death. I agree with Piper's words, and... As I thought about not letting this serious crisis that we are in right now go to waste or not squandering the opportunities it presents and thinking that not everyone listening right now or that will listen is truly a Christian, I thought I would take a moment to refer to a 19th century pastor named J.C. Ryle and his booklet titled, Sickness. By the way, J.C. Ryle was married three times. Why? Because his first two wives died young. 
So I received an email this week that included some, some great portions from Ryle's booklet. I want to share just some of what was in that email with you this morning. He says, sickness helps to make men think seriously of God, their souls, and the world to come. A severe disease has a surprising power to bring these thoughts before the eyes of a man's soul. He says further, sickness is universal and everywhere. Men, women, and children sicken and die. And certainly they did in great numbers in his day. Sickness is among all classes and of every description. Why is sickness universal? The only explanation that satisfies is that which the Bible gives. Something has come into the world that has stripped man of his original privileges. In a word, sin. Sin entered into the world and death by sin. As it says in Romans 5.12, sin is the cause of all the sickness, disease, pain, and suffering that prevail on the earth. Now we ask, in a world of disease and death, what ought we to do? Sickness requires that we live habitually prepared to meet God. Sickness is a reminder of death. Death is the door through which we must all pass to judgment. Judgment is the time when we must at least see God, or that we must at last see God face to face. The first lesson that each should learn in a sick and dying world is to prepare to meet his God. When are you prepared to meet God? J.C. Ryle says, never till your iniquities are forgiven and your sin covered. The blood of Jesus Christ alone can cleanse those sins away. The righteousness of Christ alone can make you acceptable in God's sight. Faith, simple childlike faith alone can give you a part in Christ and his benefits. The time must come when you, as well as others, must sicken and die. Rest not, he says, till you can give a satisfactory answer. Presume not on a deathbed repentance. What he means by that is, don't think you can wait or delay faith in Christ, or trusting in Christ, or turning to him and turning away from sin, and just do it right before you die. Don't think that, he goes on to say, one dying thief was saved that men might not despair, but only one that none might presume. If you are not yet prepared to meet God, acquaint yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, without delay. Okay. 
Hello, everyone. We're back, I hope, at least for a while, and maybe I'll be able to um, make it through today. So I'm going to try to pick back up where I left off, and you can pray for me. I'm, uh, this is certainly not easy. So I was, I was quoting from a booklet by J.C. Ryle called Suffering. And I think, I'm just going to go a little bit back. And J.C. Ryle says, If you are not yet prepared to meet God, acquaint yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ without delay. And then he says, Of all gambling in the world, there is none so reckless as that of the man who lives unprepared to meet God. Flee to Christ and be saved. Repent and be converted. I also mentioned that uh, from another article I read addressing the question, what does the Bible say about pandemic diseases? And specifically addressing COVID-19. The Christian writers wrote, disease should be a reminder that life on this earth is tenuous and can be lost at any moment. As bad as pandemics are, hell will be worse. A Christian, however, has the assurance of salvation and the hope of eternity because of the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us. So, viewer, I'm going to ask again, but you didn't hear that this last time, but I'm asking again, are you a Christian? Are you really a Christian? If not, then you are for sure not prepared to meet God. If you were with us last week in Philippians, a sermon titled Pernicious Influences, I I talked about people who, because it's there in the text, about people who profess to belong to Christ, but do not really belong to him. And Paul says that their end is destruction. They may claim that they're going to heaven, but in reality, their end is destruction. Hell awaits them. And so I ask again, I hope that this pandemic has made people think about death and eternity and meeting God. And so I ask again, are you ready to meet him? And if you don't have Christ, you're not ready to meet him. Because you still have not yet been forgiven of your sins and cleansed by the blood and clothed with his righteousness. So I would plead with you, consider these things seriously. And if you do not truly know him, you may profess him, but you have no saving, living relationship with him, then I would plead that you would, in faith, reach out to him and call upon him as your Lord and Savior, repenting of your sins and trusting in his work on the cross and his resurrection to be your salvation to be your making right, making you right with God. So, beloved, here we go again. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. I am definitely going overtime this time. I'm just going to tell you, it's already 1140. So we'll see. Here we go. We are nearing the end of this wonderful letter that we find our, and we find ourselves now in the final chapter. 
And in this section, or verses 1 through 9 of chapter 4, we find a number of appeals, a number of appeals that Paul makes to the church at Philippi. These appeals or exhortations include standing firm, being united, rejoicing, being gentle, not being anxious, focusing on what is excellent, and following a godly model. So I titled this section, based on all of that, simply Final Appeals, Final Appeals. We will look at this section over several Sundays, and today we're just going to cover verse 1, but I want to begin our study by reading the entire section. So hopefully you're there in your copy of God's Word at Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So again, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, before we get to the appeal, stand firm thus in the Lord, I want to discuss something Paul calls his Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi, who he clearly has great affection for. So Paul calls them my joy and crown. My joy and crown. Now, first off, is Paul speaking here, as some suggest, about a future joy and crown, like Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19. I'll read that for you. There in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? And the you there is the church at Thessalonica. So is he saying, like he does in Thessalonians, is he saying that the Philippians will be his joy and crown in the future? That is when the Lord comes again and he stands together with them and sees them all accepted and fully embraced by Christ before the throne? Possibly. Possibly. However, what he says in Philippians is not exactly the same as what he says in 1 Thessalonians. And even though it doesn't make a huge difference one way or the other, I would take it to mean, as some others have, that my joy and crown describes what the Christians in Philippi were to Paul at that time, in the present That is that those men and women that he loved and fought so hard for, not only to see come to Christ, 
but also to see grow and become more and more like Christ, that they were his great joy. They were his present delight. They were also his crown even then. So the word joy, I don't think that really needs to be explained. But crown, but crown, when we're looking at that word, is explained this way by one author, specifically John MacArthur. He says this, it does not refer the crown to a royal crown, but to a laurel wreath given to victors in athletic events or given to those honored by their peers, much as trophies and plaques are today. Such an honoree would be given a feast where he would receive his wreath. The Philippians were Paul's trophy or wreath of honor. So what else do I want to say about this? Why did I draw attention to it? Well, beloved, simply this. We find joy in having or obtaining or experiencing or achieving what is important or meaningful to us, right? That's what we find joy in. So what was important or meaningful to Paul? Well, it was, we can draw from this, the spiritual well-being of other human beings, other people's faith in and pursuit of Christ seeing others, bringing glory and honor to Christ, seeing men and women conformed more and more to the image of Christ. For indeed, all these things were true of the church at Philippi. I wonder how important or meaningful that is for you. Paul's joy in the Philippians is in part what conformity to Christ looks like. Because Christ has the same joy. To find joy in the things Christ finds joy in is Christ-likeness. As another apostle says in 3 John, the apostle John says in 3 John 4, and this is a fairly well-known passage. People often use it in regard to their children, their actual physical children, but the idea is a little different here, more like your spiritual children or those that are under your care, spiritually speaking. The apostle John writes, I have no greater joy in verse 4 to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In other words, nothing nothing makes me happier than to hear that men and women are walking in the truth of Christ, growing in their faith, faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that is a sign of conformity to Christ's likeness, where my likes my joys become the very likes and joys. My desires become the very desires of Christ himself. 
In addition, for Paul, his crown, his trophy, his wreath of honor that he happily speaks about was the result of what, beloved? His spirit-empowered efforts and labor in his life towards seeing other men and women come to faithfully worship, serve, proclaim, and bring glory to Jesus Christ. Again, the crown Paul speaks of points us to what is so important and meaningful to Paul. I wonder, are we working for such a crown as this, a trophy, a wreath of honor like this? And if not, why not? Why not? It is what it is to be conformed to the very image of Christ, to pursue what he would pursue, to live as he would live, to desire the things that he desires, to strive for the things that he would strive for. So let's look at the appeal now. Let's look at the appeal in verse 1. Therefore, and then he addresses his readers with all of the language that we just looked, some of the language that we just looked at. Therefore, stand firm thus. Or you could translate thus in this way or in this manner. That word is there and we need to take that into consideration. It's not just stand firm, it's stand firm thus. Along with most Bible commentators, I understand Paul to be looking backward in his letter, not forward, when he says stand firm thus or in this manner. What manner? The manner or way that I just spoke of, or that Paul just spoke of. So then, it is in light of verses 17 through 21 of chapter 3 that Paul says, stand firm thus, or in the manner or way I just mentioned, my beloved. This appeal is then followed by a number of other appeals as he begins to bring the letter to a close. So chapter 4, verse 1, not only serves as a conclusion to the preceding section at the end of chapter 3, but also as a transition to the additional appeals or exhortations that we find in verses 2 through 9 of chapter 4. I say this because a minority of Bible commentators think that Paul is looking forward So then stand firm thus, or in this way, would mean, looking at verse 2, by being united. Verse 4, by rejoicing always, and so on and so forth. Along with most commentators, I don't think that is the case. I believe Paul is making a reference backward, not forward. So stand firm. Stand firm. Well, as uh, one writer points out, it's an imperative. It's a command uh, that John MacArthur here, I'm quoting, says, with almost a military ring to it. Like soldiers in the front line, believers are commanded to hold their position while under attack. Stand firm, the Greek word translated that way, could be translated, be steadfast. Be steadfast. Steadfast, a definition of that would to be resolutely firm, 
or unwavering in the Lord. Quoting now one scholar, he says, commentator, Paul urged them to steadfastness. Perhaps the language came from the military and therefore had significant meaning for the city populated by military families, which we spoke of when we introduced this letter. The Roman armies were known for standing unmoved against the enemy. The church was to stand in the same way. But as I just said, it's not just stand firm, but stand firm thus or in this manner, which I mentioned earlier is meant, I believe, to refer back to the content that we looked at previously that's found in chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. So what do we have there? In chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, Paul urges his readers to carefully follow his example, to imitate his pattern of life as a genuine follower of Christ and faithful one as well, as a genuine Christian, and to pay special attention to or to learn from and be influenced by the Christian example of other Christians who live according to that same pattern that they have in Paul and his co-workers. They also, in that area, that material in verse, verses 17 through 21 of chapter 3, were warned about a pernicious influence. Those who profess faith in Christ, but walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. An influence that could undermine their Christian faith or their spiritual stability. The implication is that they are to resist that harmful influence. We see there as well that they are reminded in that section of their heavenly citizenship, their true home, what should be their their focus at all times, and the coming of their Savior to perfect them completely. Now, this appeal is, of course, motivated by love. Love, the love of Paul, and a godly desire. And, And and should be heated, right? It should be heated. They are to stand firm thus by keeping their eyes fixed on what they should be fixed on, by learning from Paul and those who practice the same pattern that Paul practices in regard to their Christian life, living for Christ, living in pursuit of Christ, putting off sin, walking in righteousness. They should, uh, they should stand firm thus by not letting themselves be influenced by those who profess faith in Christ, but do not possess Christ, made evident by the way that they live their lives, they conduct themselves. They are indeed enemies of the cross of Christ. This desire or this appeal is is a good appeal, and it should be heeded. They should stand firm thus. They should remain steadfast in the midst of, of these enemies of the cross of Christ that Paul said there were many. And I was thinking about what Paul might say to us in our difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in now. Stand firm thus in the Lord, and the thus might be many things that 
in this manner, in this way, that he would be able to say, stand firm in the Lord in the midst of these situations. Stand firm thus by preaching the gospel to yourself, by by being focused on your, again, heavenly citizenship, by trusting and reminding yourself that you can trust God and the things that we've talked about before, that he is good, that he is sovereign, that he is working all things according to his good purposes and plans, that he uses these events to accomplish his good purposes, conforming us more to the image of Christ. All of that. All of that. But beloved, I wanted to, I wanted to speak to the fact that we often as struggling sinners are, this is how I wanted to conclude this time, we are, we are not always strong soldiers, are we? The appeal is right and good. Stand firm, thus. Okay? But we don't always look like strong soldiers. We don't always act like strong soldiers. We are not often strong soldiers. And this, this is where the true blessing of the church really shines for me. It really shines. Because the idea is not that, that we're supposed to do this on our own or by ourselves, this standing firm. It's, it's always in the context of a church helping one another, encouraging one another, strengthening one another, pointing each other to the very things that will help them to stand firm. to not be compromised, to resist anything and everything that would bring them low or dishonor God. And so that reminded me of, of a passage I've looked covered with you before. I wanted to take you back there real quick. The blessing of the church, especially in regard to being able to stand firm. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but you can. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, there, also written by Paul, he says, and we urge you, brothers, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Well, that tells you something right there, right? People need help. People need encouraging. Faint-hearted, the word faint-hearted, I just want to look at two of those statements. Encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak faint-hearted. The Greek word literally means the small-souled. The small-souled. It's the discouraged. It's those who discourage you. I could define that as having lost confidence or enthusiasm or disheartened. One writer says they are members who have been discouraged for some reason, perhaps because of adverse circumstances. Wow. We have a, a good bucket of adverse circumstances going on right now. Stand firm. Okay. But we also are called to encourage the faint-hearted. There's a recognition here that, we, that we're weak that we need the encouragement of our brothers and sisters. Encourage them. Listen, be there for them. Remind or instruct them with God's word is the idea. One writer says, biblical certainty that their Lord, remind them of these things, biblical certainty that their Lord answers their prayers, secures their salvation, includes them in the final resurrection, loves them eternally, and sovereignly fulfills his will for their lives. 
That's how you can encourage the faint-hearted, those who are disheartened due to adverse circumstances, so that they might stand firm. Help the weak, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. I like the, the New King James translation of that. It, it says, uphold the weak, uphold the weak. One writer says, help is somewhat is a somewhat imprecise rendering of the Greek word, which means to hold firmly, to cling to, to support, to hold up. Paul commanded the stronger sheep to come alongside the weaker sheep. That's the beauty of the church. You're always going to have some variation, some ratio of stronger and weaker in the church, always. And then one day the stronger is the weak, and on the other day the weak is the strong, but together, with each other. They help each other. They hold each other up. They instruct. They encourage. They walk alongside. One writer says, let the strong put their arms around the weak and hold them up. That's the idea. And while we can refer to there in Thessalonians both physical and spiritual weakness, it would be best to understand it in the context as spiritual weakness. One writer says, it may refer to those who were struggling to follow the Lord because of persecution or trials. Another Bible scholar comments that the presence of weak, listen, the presence of weak believers in the church is no Thessalonian peculiarity. It's like, oh yeah, you know, he wrote that to the Thessalonians because, you know, they got weak Christians over there. No, that's, that's not the case. They're everywhere because we are weak. He says, weak souls are the normally frail human stuff of which the Christian church consists. Yes, stand firm. Be a good soldier, for sure. But we're weak. And so we need each other. We need the help from one another. We need the encouragement from one another. Truly converted people may be weak for... A number of reasons, and certainly I could understand that being the case under such adverse circumstances as we find ourselves in now. One author said, some believers are weak through lack of knowledge of the will of God, some through lack of courage to trust God, some through the lack of stability or purpose are easily carried away, some lack courage to face or will to endure persecution or criticism. Some are unable to control the appetites of the body or the impulses of the mind. Like anxiety in the midst of COVID-19, which Paul will also address there in Philippians, is one of his appeals not to be anxious. So, beloved, I just want to close with this. I Don't pretend you're strong when you're not. I think for whatever reason, pride keeps us from always being open or honest with those who are, have an interest in knowing really how you're doing. And beyond that, sometimes we just need you to, to tell us or let us know if you are struggling. Otherwise, how will we know? So I say reach out. During this difficult, and really it is a dark time, and beloved, we can for sure trust in God. 
We can sh- for sure know he is sovereign and he is good and he is working all things according to his good purposes, for sure. That doesn't mean we don't struggle in the midst of it to, s- to keep track of all of that and to keep it ever center in our minds and our hearts. Things are difficult and they most likely will get more difficult in the next couple of weeks. And I don't know. I don't know how long this goes on. I don't know. God does. So I can trust in that. But again, that's something I have to remind myself of because I myself can feel the anxieties in my heart bubbling up and doubts and fears. And then there's just a matter of practical help that people might need. We want you to reach out. You don't have to pretend to be something you're not. Yes, we need to stand firm amidst all the adverse circumstances, but we're not going to do that without the help of one another. But we can't help one another if we don't know you need help. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help Summit Bible Church to, uh, to be a community of faithful believers who, in this difficult time, when we are more isolated from one another, separated from one another, to, to figure out ways to continue to communicate with one another and reach out into others' lives and, 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 and for the purpose of encouraging, but also asking, how are you doing? And, and Lord, help us not to, to pretend in any way. That's not going to help anybody, but to, to ask for help and to share if, if they're struggling or they're having waves of anxiety or, or even depression. Father, I myself uh, will confess that I don't feel, often don't feel right lately in the midst of all of the news and, and all that's going on. And, and Lord, I, I look to you, I turn to you, I recall uh, the sweet truths of your gospel and the promises found therein. And, and Lord, that does help. But I, I also have those who, who speak those truths into my life and, and remind me the things that I need to hold on to and cling to. And that because they know my weaknesses and what I'm struggling with, pray for me and lift me up accordingly. And, and Father, what a difference that makes. And so, Lord, help our little body to do that very thing for one another, to help one another, to encourage the faint-hearted, that we might be able to stand firm as one. Regardless of what happens, regardless of how long it goes on, that we might be able to stand firm in the Lord. I ask this for your sake and for your honor. In Christ's name, amen.